Hello and welcome to I Really Wish You Hadn't. This is a podcast about people and businesses that have made horrible mistakes, have fallen apart at the seams, or have just been generally awful since their inception. They're the kind of people and businesses that make you think, man, I really wish you hadn't. everybody and welcome back to I Really Wish You Hadn't. I'm Michael Bentley hanging out with Cayman McMahon. Hey, hey. And the producing man with the production plan, Colin Moore. Hey, everybody. This week we're discussing Sega. When you think about gaming in the early 90s, you obviously think one thing, and that's Nintendo. But right after that, you think about Sega. Before we jump in, I want to acknowledge my source for a lot of the material that I'll be covering today. The book is Service Games, The Rise and Fall of Sega by Sam Pettis. It's a great read, and there's a lot of great side stories that we're not going to have time to cover today. There's a lot of consoles and a lot of just random stuff that happens. So definitely recommend the book. Cayman, anything you wanted to add before we start? Um, Echo the Dolphin is the best video game franchise of all time. I strongly disagree. (laughs) I disagree so hard. Doesn't matter if you disagree. It's an amazing game. It's an I, amazing game. I tried playing it one time, and I literally couldn't figure out how to start the game. Like you it start out number five on Cayman's top five uh, favorite Genesis games. What an honor! <laughs> I guess we should also mention now that this is a two-part episode. Oh yeah, our first one. Very yeah. exciting stuff. You could probably tell that from the title being Sega Part One, <laughs> but I still feel like uh, it was. Oh, it's it was nice worth to mentioning. It. Right. Well, there's just so much to cover. I mean... Oh, yeah. No, re- realistically, we were talking the other day, and this should be like a 10-part HBO series, not a two-part amateur podcast series. But uh, we're going to we're gonna cover as much as we can. Exactly. Like, I feel like you could seriously make an entire podcast of just this story. So we're going to hit the highlights, but definitely do your own research. There's, like I said, there's just so much good material that I wish that we could include. All right, well, let's just jump into it. All right. The story of Sega begins as many great stories do. On August 15th, 1945, when Japanese Emperor Hirohito announces Japan's surrender, ending World War II. I hate you, and if we were in the same room, I would punch you right now. But continue. Let's, let's try and tie it in. Okay, so World War II ends, the Japanese surrender, and the Cold War is just getting started. So America is trying to make sure that, you know, various countries around the Pacific aren't falling to communism. Korea has just been divided in half, with half being uh, Soviet-backed North Korea, the other half being American-backed South Korea. And Japan itself is kind of at risk being so close to Russia. So America starts stationing a lot of servicemen in Japan kind of as a preemptive and also as a protective barrier against the Soviets. One of these servicemen is named David Rosen. Rosen was in the Air Force until 1952 when he ends his tour of duty and gets out of the service but decides to stay in Japan. And David Rosen starts up a company importing coin-operated phone booths and pinball machines into Japan. And this was hugely successful because there was a lot of people who didn't have a whole lot of free time and what little bit they did have, they had they had spare money to spend and these Coin-operated pinball machines were hugely successful. He then made a deal to combine his company with the largest jukebox company in Japan, and together they formed a company called Service Games. Now listen closely. Service Games. Hmm. Service Games. Service Games. Sega. Sega. Yeah. We're there. It's not an acronym. Yeah. It's like a first two letters of each word, Renem. I was so disappointed when I found out that that's what Sega meant. Yeah. like it's You expect like, it to be so much cooler. I, I honestly just thought it was a word. I thought they made something I thought something it was going to be like some cool like Japanese word. Yeah. It means like flowing think. water, fiery lava, something like that. Yeah. No, it's just service games. <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. But yeah, sorry to ruin the magic. That's what <laughs> Sega stands for. Hmm. So under Rosen's direction, the company created its first amusement machine called Periscope. It was a game where you would shoot down battleships using a submarine periscope that actually hung down from the top of the machine. 
so keep in mind, this is in the 60s. So this is before video games are a thing. This is not a video game. This is an amusement machine, meaning everything that you play with is a physical object. So the, the submarines that you're shooting down are literal cutouts of submarines in the back and the quote-unquote missiles that you would be shooting are are physical lights along the machine. It's really hard to explain, but seeing it in a video form, which again, I was only able to find one video of one actually in operation, but it just looks so neat and there's just nothing that compares to it today. I'd like to point out this game looks so cool. It looks so cool. Like, there's this, like, epoxy stuff. Oh, man, like, you, like, see the missile travel and hit the ships and, like, do an explosion, and it looks like it's traveling under the sea. Dude, I want to play one so bad, but they're super rare. Now, granted, these were a lot more expensive to produce, and, you know, they're all actual machinery rather than being digital. So it makes sense that none of them have really survived. There actually is still one in operation. Cayman, do you remember what country that was in? That is in the Netherlands. Yeah, yeah. So if you're wanting to uh, make a trip, maybe you could stop by and see it. We'll hit it right after Bend, Oregon, right? So after they released Periscope, a company called Gulf and Western decided to acquire Sega. They allowed it to continue as a subsidiary and even allowed David Rosen to continue on as president. After acquiring Sega, Gulf and Western then wanted Sega to breach the video game market, which was just starting in arcades. Sega bought a U.S. video games manufacturer called Gremlin. And because this was a U.S. company, this allowed them to function in the U.S. video games market, which was a very high barrier for foreign companies to breach in the U.S. Now remember, this is shortly after World War II, so we were still very much a Americans for America kind of country. So the fact that they then had Gremlin meant that they had an in with the U.S. market. And through Gremlin, they saw great success in both the U.S. and Japanese markets. There's a game called Zaxxon that was very popular. It was basically your standard space shooter where you shot at spaceships and robots. But the final boss was a traditional Chinese dragon for some reason. <laughs> and Zaxxon was so popular that Sega was able to open their first U.S. office off the proceeds of Zaxxon alone. Hmm. So Sega had a foothold in the U.S. market that other companies wanted a piece of. So Sega took to licensing other companies' games and releasing them in the U.S., and around this time, Sega also took their first dive into the home console market by producing home ports of some of their arcade games for the Atari 2600. Sega was then sold to Bali Manufacturing, which was a video game company looking to also break into the home console market. Shortly after the sale to Bali came the video game crash of 1983. And the video game crash of 1983 can really be its own episode entirely. Yeah. it's There's so much that goes into this, but I'm going to hit the highlights of it. At its core, it really comes down to a lack of demand versus an excess of supply. Right. So 10% of games at this time were getting 75% of sales. Right. And it, it kind of became a bubble because it grew so quickly that a ton of different companies were coming out and trying to make video game consoles to try and scoop up some of that market. But there were so many different games on the market that nobody could get enough to actually be profitable. And there was also a great decrease in the price of home computers. So you had these competing home computers that could also run video games. And a lot of consumers were like, why would I buy a specialized game console when I could buy a home computer that can play games and also do all the other things that I would need, like word processing and, and whatever else. A sentiment that the three people of this podcast still share to this day. Exactly. Why would I buy a 360? Well, yeah. the reason is because a 360 is like, or wait, shit, I'm talking about an Xbox 360. Am I like, in 2007? <laughs> That's the last console you bought. That's true. Yeah. I have a Nintendo Switch. Oh, yeah, I have a Switch. Oh, yeah. Oh, you can't do that. Dude, don't 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 click after saying Nintendo Switch. That is copyrighted. I will get into that later. <laughs> really? Okay. Yes, you cannot do that. <laughs> You're gonna have to bleep that, Colin. So anyway, put a pin in the fact that people wanted a personal computer instead of a console because it's gonna be important later. Due to the crash of '83, David Rosen sees an opportunity. He and a colleague named Nakayama buy Sega back in 1984. Hey, Cayman, you remember in the, our Blockbuster episode how you really took a dislike to that Antioko guy? Yeah. Well, Nakayama is my Antioko for this episode. Gotcha. He 
is kind of the person that I attribute everything bad that happens to. <laughs> and you're going to hear me say the name Nakayama a lot over the next two episodes, so just keep that in mind. Great. So, Rosen and Nakayama buy Sega back. Rosen becomes the president of Sega of America, and Nakayama is president of Sega of Japan. The reason that Bali was so eager to sell Sega was because of the failure of their first console, the SG-1000. This console was marketed as a home computer, even though it was pretty much just a video games console. But a lot of consoles at this time were marketing themselves as home computers because of that stigma against video game consoles at this time. But this one went a step further and came with a keyboard and a printer and even had a basic programming cartridge. And BASIC was one of the first programming languages. I'm not saying right. it was like a BASIC cartridge. It, it, it was for BASIC programming. Okay, nerd. Hey. You call somebody a nerd in every episode? Well, it's because you guys are nerds. And we're normally talking about programming at some point. <laughs> yeah, no, it's always when you guys talk about your nerdy programming stuff. <laughs> so, again, this console never sold well. It, it never sold well in America because of the crash of 83, and it never sold well in Japan because it happened to be released on the same day as the Famicom, also known as the Nintendo Entertainment System. Right, so the Famicom, or the NES in the U.S., was released in Japan on July 15th, 1983, of course, the same day as the SG-1000, alongside three ports of Nintendo's very successful arcade games, Donkey Kong, Donkey Kong Jr., and Popeye. So the NES was launched in the U.S. really in September 1986, which was the same time that Sega launched the Master System. The Master System, or the SG-1000 Mark III, as the name implies, was just a rework of the SG-1000. They had really tried to make it work, dial in more on the fact that it was for video games, and stop trying to present it as much as a home computer. So it was released with the two games, Hang On and Safari Hunt, in a multi-cart. Now, I don't know this for sure, but I did my darndest in research to try and find out. This might have been the first multi-cart. I can't find a single multi-cart beforehand. Now, I should explain a multi-cart is a cartridge that has multiple games on it. I can't find a single multi-cart before Hang On and Safari Hunt. Now, I would love to be proven wrong, so maybe one of our listeners can find it. So, two third-party American publishers, Activision and Parker Brothers, were working with Sega at this time. But, really, the Master System was selling underwhelmingly. It had about 450,000 to 750,000 expected sales, but in 1986 it only sold 125,000. This is largely in part due to the success of the NES. The NES had been around longer, it had more games, even though it wasn't in the US that much longer. So I'd like to point out that, kind of writing on that point, the NES had a 90% share of the US gaming market. And that was due to the fact that Parker Brothers and Activision were two of the only third parties that Sega had for the for the Sega Master System. Right. And that was because Nintendo had so much of a share of the market that they required their third parties to sign these contracts to say that if you released a game on the Nintendo Entertainment System, you had to wait two years before you could port it to any other game console. And people were eager to sign up because... Nintendo had so much of the market that you were insane not to try and get on the NES. Right, and at this point, it you know, had been around much longer in Japan, even though it did come to the U.S. really at the same time as the Master System. It had 17 launch games in the U.S. A lot of people like to say that it had like a nine-month head start because it did have some early releases, but it had already been out for three years in Japan when it came to the initial launch in the U.S., so I don't, I don't feel like that, that nine months is really fair to say that that's the reason that the Nintendo was better. Really, the reason that the Nintendo was better was because of its catalog of games, its name recognition. Yeah, so talking about third parties and kind of like the release of games and, and all that, Namco, who was the creators of Pac-Man, had an early deal with Nintendo. They were one of the first third parties to make a deal. So they had a really great deal where they weren't really beholden to the other things that third parties had to sign up for. Like, they had a better cut of the profits from their games. They didn't have to wait as long with exclusivity to other consoles. But that contract ran out. And so when Namco went to go renegotiate that contract, Nintendo basically said, no, you've got to sign the same contract everybody else has. So you're going to take a cut to your profits. You're going to be forced into exclusivity deals. 
And so Namco said, forget it. We'll just go work for Sega. We'll, we'll make Sega games. And Namco also sues Nintendo for anti-competitive practices. But unfortunately, Namco doesn't have enough time to really get their programmers used to the new Sega infrastructure. And so they don't have enough time to produce a game. And so they're forced into going back to Nintendo and continuing to produce for Nintendo. The Master System was more powerful than the NES. It had better graphics. The consensus is that the controllers were seen as being a bit better. Uh, you had the eight direction pad instead of the four direction pad the NES had. There were a few bad things about the Master System. Uh, the pause button was on the console instead of the controller, which a lot of people found annoying. It was more difficult to insert and remove cartridges. And really the game boxes weren't as flashy, which is things I want to focus on. So when Nintendo has a lot more games than the Master System. But also the Master System looked a whole lot less exciting. They didn't have that color. They didn't have that pop. I mean, even looking at the two consoles, at least, you know, the Nintendo's kind of brighter. It's got the red on it. It's not the most exciting thing in the world, but the Master System is still looks like the SG-1000. It still kind of looks like an Atari, which is seen as being the older thing, whereas Nintendo looked a, a bit more new, a bit more exciting. So the Master System, after being a failure, ceased production in the U.S. in 1992. But it was a huge success in Brazil. In Brazil, it's still being produced to this day. 2015 reported that it was selling 150,000 units per year in Brazil. And as of 2016, the Master System had sold 8 million units just in Brazil, which would make it the longest living console in history. Now, aside from that... So Sega still wants to stay in the console game. The Master System didn't do that great. So at this point, they start thinking about making something new. So in 1989, a few years before they stopped producing the Master System, one in three American households had a Nintendo system, if that tells you how popular they are. Sega is falling majorly behind and really needs to knock one out of the park to keep up. So Sega released the Mega Drive in Japan in 1988. And this became the Genesis in North America on August 14th, 1989. They beat Nintendo to the punch because the Genesis was a 16-bit console. Whereas the Super Nintendo, which was Nintendo's 16-bit console, wasn't released until November of 1990 in Japan and August 1991 in North America. So they had a two-year lead. Well, you know, they say you say they had a two-year lead, but I'm pretty sure that they had a forever lead because the Sega Genesis had blast processing. It did have blast processing. It did. And uh, <laughs> and I don't think any Nintendo system has ever had blast processing. Well, Colin, I see that you have fallen prey to Sega's marketing, which is something <laughs> that we will get into later. Okay. But it is fantastic. <laughs> right. So this was a true arcade experience. You had a lot of, you know, arcade games at this time that were very popular that were 16-bit games. So they weren't having to be dialed down to be on a less superior home console. You were getting the arcade game. Sports games, they really had a lot of sports games on this, which was huge in the U.S. And also, Sega wasn't as restrictive about what kind of games could come to its console. So they did a lot of more violent video games, as people saw. So on that point, Cayman... Yes, they were porting a lot of arcade games, but a lot of consumers saw the arcade games as repetitive and kind of boring because you've got to think about the, the difference between an arcade game versus a console game, right? An arcade game is meant to be a repetitive loop that's going to get as many quarters out of people as it possibly can. So they're incredibly difficult and they're incredibly repetitive. But when you port that to a home console, there, you don't have the restriction of quarters, so you've got to implement a live system, but it's still that repetitive gameplay loop. So two of them, two of the games that were released with the Genesis were Altered Beast and Michael Jackson's Moonwalker. And we're not going to get into the problematic idea that Michael Jackson was a huge selling point of this console. <laughs> but those were both very repetitive video games that were designed for the arcades. Altered Beast is awesome. So if you're about to say anything bad about Altered Beast, I will jump through this webcam. I hate Altered Beast. I Do hate you Altered really? Beast. I hate Altered Beast so much. It is such a boring game. You just walk and punch. That's literally all you do. It's not even like a beat-em-up. You, you walk in a straight line because you can't control like your forward-to-backward movement, and you just hit the punch button. That's all you do. That's the whole game. You get to turn into a werewolf. And? You get to turn into a dragon. And? It's... 
I I love it. Rise from your grave. It's, that, yeah, that's no, the best part great. of the game, is just hearing that part. <laughs> no, it's it's a great game. It's a great game. You put in a quarter, you hear rise from your grave, and then you can walk away because there's nothing else to do. Uh, man, we are going to disagree. Genesis is my favorite console, by the way. If you haven't figured it out, I'm, I'm going to get real deep into this. The other point that you made was sports games. And I want to talk about Electronic Arts, uh, also known as EA today. EA wanted to produce for Sega to avoid the infamous Nintendo contracts, which were highly infamous for your profit margins and the consoles that you could produce for. So EA came to Sega and said, we want a better profit margin than Nintendo's giving us. And Sega said no. So EA said, well, actually, we've reverse engineered the Genesis and we're capable of making unlicensed games. So we don't really need your permission. We're going to do it regardless. We'd rather do it with you, but we will do it without you. And so Sega said, we would love for EA to produce games for us. (laughs) So EA turned out to be a great third party to have on the console. And this is actually the first console release of Madden Football, which is still huge today. Yeah. And it happened to be on the Genesis. Yeah. And like you said, sports games were huge. Like, sports games were bigger then than they are now, and sports games are still some of the best sellers today. Yeah, and I mean, so a combination of the sports games, the allowing the games to have violence, and, you know, it was seen as a bad thing, and there's definitely good things about it too, that arcade experience, that kind of, like, competitive gaming that they had. The Sega, even before Nintendo was launched, was already presenting itself as a more adult entertainment system you know it wasn't as much like goofy cartoon characters at least at the launch you had a lot more appeal for a larger audience and my parents actually the first console that i ever remember is a sega genesis because my parents owned one and you know we had the fun kid games we had like the animaniacs and a few disney games and my dad had some sports games so, like, it was a console for the entire family. It wasn't just for kids. It was the grown-up console. And so going off of that, the famous ad line was, Genesis does what Nintendo don't. <laughs> like, they were they were intended to be like, okay, Nintendo's the kiddie console. We're doing everything that Nintendo isn't. So Nintendo's marketing to, like, five-year-olds. We're going to go for that older market. Now, wait a second. Do we have the clip? Yeah, I have the clip. Are we playing the clip? Is this a good time for us to play the clip, Michael? What are we playing of? Go ahead and play that clip there, Colin. Okay, we're going to play the clip. We're yeah. playing the clip. <laughs> 16-bit arcade graphics. <laughs> 16-bit sports action. <laughs> oh, yeah. Genesis does. Genesis does. Montana free, Pat Riley free, Buster Douglas free, oh, yeah. Super Monocle oh, G free, or Collins free. What Nintendo buy a 16-bit yeah. Genesis system between now and October 31st and get an extra game. <laughs> so yeah, you were saying uh, something about Genesis being able to do what Nintendo can't. Yeah, yeah. So the, the whole Genesis does what Nintendo don't. <laughs> yeah. That whole phrase was coined by Sega of America president Michael Katz. At this point, David Rosen had stepped down as president and allowed new leadership to come in. And you heard how catchy Genesis does what Nintendo don't. Like it was it was the talk oh, yeah. of everybody. Like it was great. Unfortunately, shortly after that, Michael Katz got fired from his position because Nakayama, hey, remember that name? Oh yeah, that name. Was not satisfied with the launch of the Genesis. Despite most people seeing the launch as a success. Yes. And to add insult to injury, the Super Nintendo was also released in 1991 Mm. with the tagline, and this is cringy. This is so cringy. Nintendo is what Genesis isn't. Oh, yeah. No, that's cringy. That's (laughs) That's bad. bad. That's like, (laughs) that's like, no, I know you are, but what am I? (laughs) It's horrible. That's, that's, yeah, that's, that's a, that's a poor playground comeback. It's bad. bad. Mm hmm. But Michael Katz was replaced by Tom Kalinske. And again, this is another one of those names that I'm going to mention a lot over the next two episodes. If Nakayama is my Joker, Tom Kalinske's my Batman. All right. Mm. Tom Kalinske is the guy that I wish could make so many more decisions in this story, but he doesn't. Yep. So Tom Kalinske is an interesting figure. He had previously worked at 
Mattel, the toy company, and he had worked on the Barbie account. And under his leadership, Barbie went from a $42 million a year brand to a $1 billion a year brand. He also helped create the He-Man TV show and toys. So you could say that he had the power. Skeletor. I love love that. Yeah. 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 (laughs) Yes. Okay. No, no, no. I want to reverse what I said earlier. If Mm -hmm. Nakayama is the Skeletor of this story, (laughs) Tom Kalinske's the (laughs) He-Man. Okay. I like that better. Yeah, that's good. Excellent. Okay. So Tom is coming into Sega at an interesting time. Genesis just had a decent launch, but was just completely blown out of the water by the Super Nintendo. Like, the Super Nintendo had so many more sales. Right. So yeah, the Super Nintendo is better. Genesis had a great two years, and those two years that Nintendo wasn't in the market. And they did a great job of taking some of that fan base. They did a great job of growing their market share there. But the thing that I said earlier, you know, one in three American households, American households, which is the biggest economy in the world, even then, had a Nintendo. So it was good that they cut into some of it, which I feel like should have been seen as a huge success. But that name recognition still came back around. By the time that it was time for the Super Nintendo, people wanted to see what was up. People still wanted, you know, the upgrade from 8-bit to 16-bit. Yeah, no, I I completely agree. I mean, nobody wants to spend more money for a new console, and that really is what's going to come back to bite Sega over and over again. People were waiting for the next Nintendo. Yeah. They didn't want a new thing. They wanted the next Nintendo. At this point, Nakayama has sent out the word to every programmer in the company to create a mascot to compete with Mario. Enter Yuji Naka. Yuji Naka was one of Sega's top programmers and had worked on many of Sega's greatest hits. Fun fact about Yuji Naka, he was actually working on a side project to get NES games to run on Genesis hardware, which he actually succeeded in, resulting in the first video game emulator. Really? Yeah. So he knew that he couldn't ever sell this idea, but it was just something he wanted to do. Like, can we get it to run? And it did. So, yeah. Anyway. Awesome. Of course, he had another side project that he was working on. He wanted to be the one to create Sega's mascot. He made his prototype blue to match the Sega logo. He gave his prototype spiked hair. He gave him tennis shoes to show how fast he was. And he was fast. In fact, he was so fast that when he showed him to one of his co-workers, his co-worker said, Man, that character's supersonic. (laughs) And the name stuck. (laughs) This, of course, is the birth of Sonic the Hedgehog. Oh, yeah. And Sonic was intended to be everything that Mario wasn't. Sonic was fast. He was snarky. He was cool. He loved chili dogs. (laughs) Mario was literally a fat Italian man who hung out in sewage pipes. (laughs) Dude, Sonic was so cool. This was like the first video game that really got me into video games because like i said we had a genesis we were a genesis household and just being able to get on there i can't tell you because i I was garbage when i was you know four years old playing this game i like to believe you're still garbage yeah no i'm still garbage but i was worse as a four-year-old if you can believe it and i would run through that level so many times i remember just like getting on Sonic and running back and forth and back and forth because it was like so fluid and there was nothing like it. Like no other game that we had was that fast. Like, like I said, we were playing like Altered Beast, Golden Axe, where you like, you slowly walk to the side and just being able to zip across the map was, was incredible. Incredible. Yeah. And I mean, you weren't the only one to think that like this was a huge success for Sega. The first Sonic game released in June of 1991 And shortly after, an independent study found that 7 out of 10 young gamers preferred Sonic over Super Mario World. And Super Mario World is is today regarded as one of the best platformers of all time. Yeah. For you to have that kind of reaction to your game, Sega had something special here. Suck it, Mario. Your stupid brother, too. Yeah, I hate green Mario. Sonic's better. He's cooler. Even his sidekick's cooler. Tails is cooler than Luigi. So the popularity of Sonic was not lost on Sega of America president Tom Kalinske. 
He decided to package Sonic with every new Genesis sold and lowered the price of the console. Because again, he's a he's an American businessman. He knows the fact that you're going off the razor blade model, right? You want the people to buy the razor and then you'll make your money on the blades. The blades being the games, the razor being the console. Sega is so good at dropping the price of their consoles. <laughs> yeah, they do it a lot. They do it a lot. Sometimes it's good, sometimes it's bad. I, in this situation, it was a strategic move. It wasn't a, we have yeah. a bunch of consoles that we need people to buy. Please <laughs> buy our consoles, please. We'll get there. We'll get there. Right now, we're not there. Yeah. Tom, this because Tom Kalinske made the decision. He's the oh, He-Man. Yeah. Anyway. Oh, you know the other great thing about Sonic that I just remembered? What? Sega. You cannot do that. Why can't Bleep I do that? Bleep that, Colin. He can't do that. He can't do that. Sounds oh, are no. sounds are copyrightable. Oh yeah, you're right. So you're saying if I'm playing a game and I boot it up and it goes Sega on Twitch, that I can get a copyright strike for that video? Probably. Well, I mean, you probably get a copyright claim just for playing the game. You can, but they're not going to. Sega's not going to sue us for going Sega. But if you're if you if you make a whole if you make a whole podcast criticizing their fucking business practices, they might. <laughs> So what you're saying is we can make the switch click in this episode. Yeah, probably. <laughs> so one more fun fact that I want to throw in about that Sega theme. Did you know that according to Team Sonic lead, Yuji Naka, the one that you've been talking about, that Sega theme took up an eighth of the cartridge space on the Sonic. I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. Wow. It's wild. It was more than any stage. Just that little you know theme that shall not be sung oh no now michael did it (laughs) no i gotta bleep him too oh no we're all getting bleeped so like i said like three years ago nakayama had a lot of people around him saying packaging sonic with every new genesis console like why would he do that why would he give away such a hit for free people love sonic we could have gotten a lot of sales on that software because a lot of people around Nakayama didn't like Tom Kalinske. They, in fact, called him Kendall in reference to the fact that he used <laughs> to be in charge of the Barbie account. Wow. Some pretty catty culture. But Nakayama didn't listen to those people around him because he trusted his friend and colleague, Tom Kalinske. But I promise you, that will not last. Mm. Did you hear that, Cayman? That's what we call in the industry last. foreshadowing. Oh. so sonic was a marketing powerhouse he was literally created to be as marketable as possible he was created at the height of the 90s counterculture when shows like beavis and butthead and ren and stimpy were all anyone would talk about so tom kalinsky was prepared to create a marketing blitz and this marketing campaign began during the 1992 mtv music video awards Because their market was watching MTV. Like, that's what they wanted, is that kind of teenage, older, young adult vibe. Well, I mean, my parents own Genesis, and my parents watch the shit out of MTV, so... Well, there you go. That makes sense. So soon, the Sega scream was heard in skate parks everywhere. And I wasn't familiar with the Sega scream whenever we did this, but uh, do you guys know what it is? It's not the Mm. Sega... No, I actually don't know what that is. What is it? It's it's just Sega. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was on a couple of games too, wasn't it? That was on a couple of games. Yeah. Yeah. No, they they played it at a couple of the the early games, and their marketing also heavily trashed Nintendo. Like there was one where there was this old like crotchety woman being like, "Oh, this Sonic the Hedgehog. Why can't he be more like that nice boy Mario?" Like they also did one where a kid was shopping for a console and. They just played, like, the worst clips of Nintendo beside, like, the coolest clips of Sega. Like, they just trashed Nintendo. Guys, we're edgy. We have a hedgehog. <laughs> <laughs> I think you mean an edgehog. Oh. Oh. oh, really, really, with the humdingers today, Michael Bentley. There you go. There you go. And so, at the end of 1993, Sega actually controlled 56% of the gaming market in North America. Sega's cool kid attitude and superior hardware made Nintendo look like a baby's toy, and everyone was eager to see what would come out next. So actually, in October of 1990, Sega launched a console to compete with something you may have heard of called the Nintendo Game Boy. 
This was called the Game Gear. It was a portable console released with six games, and unlike that puny little Nintendo Game Boy, it had color display. Oh yeah. So it was made with the Master System hardware, so of course it was an 8-bit console. It made games very easy to port to it. Despite that, it was released with six games, and by the time that it was canceled, it had 30. (laughs) So not a lot. It was also a very huge system, especially compared to the Game Boy. This thing was more closely sized to Nintendo Switch, but about three times heavier. Going back to the weight again, are we going back to the Blackberry stuff? Oh, yeah. No. It you was, have it in grams? No, this is this is an actual complaint. You can look this complaint up. <laughs> People said it was too heavy. This isn't just me being weird. So, and because of the color display, the battery life was awful. Like, you would start this thing up and play for, like, 30 minutes, and your batteries would go to red. And you'd need to, like, start looking for new batteries. Like, it was terrible. I will mention, though, the fact that they had a color display made the marketing for this console fantastic oh yeah like there's a great commercial and i do not understand i think everybody that was making sega commercials at this time were on heavy psychedelics there's a commercial where this guy is playing on a game boy and he picks up a petrified squirrel and bashes himself in the head and then just like giggles like hoo, 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 like while playing the game boy <laughs> he's like you know some people playing the game boy have to resort to some weird stuff to find colors in it but you can play the Game Gear that actually has color. Right. And because of all this marketing campaign, you would think the Game Gear was a huge success, right? No. No, it only sold 10.6 million units by March 1996. So in six years, which obviously is not great. Like I already said, by the time it was gone, it only had 30 games that that Sega had made for it. I will say, though, it was the second best handheld console right behind the Game Boy up until the PSP came out. Okay, so what else did it have to compete with it? The Atari Lynx? Yeah. <laughs> like, you want an Atari Lynx? But yeah, I mean, in my March 1996, when it stopped production, they had only sold a tenth of what the Game Boys had sold. And I mean, the game, it makes sense. The Game Boy could sit, fit in your pocket. Game Boy did eventually come out with a color version. So the technology was cool, but it was it was too much. It drained the battery fast. It made the thing expensive. It made the thing huge. A Game Boy has been to space. A Game Boy has been to space. And this this nineteen ninety six, you know, this was also due to the fact that Sega was wanting to focus more on home consoles, which we'll probably say a bit as we talk about more of our uh, other consoles coming up. And their their failure to match the sales of Game Boy was between those two things was their reasons that they wanted to stop producing the Game Gear. But this didn't mean that Sega was out of the handheld market. They still had one more try that they wanted to go for. In 1995, Sega of North America releases something called the Genesis Nomad. Uh, this was a portable version of the Genesis. It could run all the Genesis games. You know, you didn't have to have special Genesis Nomad games. You could just plug in any Genesis game. But it really failed to compete in the market, I guess, because people already had their Genesises. Genesis. Yeah, and, you know, also all the cool peripherals that came with the Genesis, which we didn't really get the time to talk about, didn't work with the Genesis no bad. Well, we'll get into a couple peripherals. We're going to touch on a couple. So, unfortunately, the Genesis Nomad only lasted four years. And that still wasn't the last handheld console, but wait for it. We'll, we'll touch on it more in part two. But we'll get into that. But we'll get into that. So, speaking of peripherals, Michael. Yeah? How about I tell you about this little thing called Sega CD? I'd love to hear about it. So, keep in mind, you know, the Nintendo has come around. The Nintendo is bumping. But the Genesis is still alive. And Sega is wanting to keep the Genesis around for a little bit. So, actually, as early as December 1991 in Japan and October 1992 in North America... Sega releases something called the Sega CD. This was a, I guess, can you call it a peripheral? If it's bigger than the Genesis itself? Absolutely. It's an add-on. I would call it an add-on. It's an add-on. Okay, an add-on. It's an add-on. Yeah, it's an add-on. So it's essentially this big dock that you can put your Genesis on. And it's attached at the side and allows you to play CD-ROM games. Now... CD-ROM games were very cool at the time, or at least marketed as being very cool, because they had full motion video and allowed games to be 320 times larger than cartridges. Were the games 320 times larger because they were on the CD? Mm, Not really, but they had more bells and whistles. 
I mean, FMV takes up a lot of space. And FMV stands for full motion video. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and that's the thing. It did have the full motion video. And, you know, this this was around as early as 1992, but it wasn't ever necessarily like a huge hit, or at least not as huge as they wanted it to be. There were a lot of games made for it, but it had to have its own power adapter. So, I mean, if you're using this and the Genesis at the same time, which you had to, you had to have two plugs to plug in. But S- Sega thought about that, and they released a power adapter, especially for the Sega Genesis and the Sega CD to run together. The games had super long loading times because of the full motion video, and they weren't really formatted in the best way possible. And a lot of times they were just taking Genesis games, porting them over, and adding videos like like adding cutscenes, trying to like build up the story, which wasn't fantastic. So a lot of games leaned way too heavily on the live motion video aspect that didn't really work that well. I'm not sure if Michael, if you've gotten to look at some of the videos because I never had a Sega CD, but the like the full motion video is kind of like choppy, like very very choppy. Now I say that the live motion video didn't work well. One of the great exceptions is a little game called Night Trap. But Michael, you going to talk about Night Trap later? I would love to talk about Night Trap. Okay, well, before you do, okay. I want to just talk about all the other super successful Sega CD games. So, like I said, you have Night Trap, and you have Sonic CD, and that's that. That's it. That's that's the two really successful Sega CD games. And I mean, Sega CD was fantastic. Is arguably the best Sonic game. Uh, a lot of people like to rank it up at the top. It's a solid Sonic game, and it has some Sonic FMVs that are really good. Yeah. So you know, that was a good game. Night Trap was a good game. Was it though? Was Night Trap a good game? It was a really cool concept. Or was it a good seller? It was a good con- now. Was it a good concept? Okay, Cayman, what's the what's the concept of Night Trap? Do you really know what it is? Because yes. I thought I knew okay. what it was. What is the concept of Night Trap? So Night Trap, you are surveying a situation that's taking place in a house. A situation? No, 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 no. Where? It's not a house. What is it? It's you're in. It's a winery. It's a, oh, winery. a winery. Winery. It's a winery. You didn't know no. that. Don't pretend so, like you knew okay. that. Okay. No, I didn't know that. All right. But okay. essentially, you're watching multiple cameras at okay. the same time. But here's the neat thing: if you're watching one camera, uh-huh. all the other cameras in the other rooms, there's other right. things happening in those rooms. Other things. So, what are those other things? Sometimes you'll see people walking through. Sometimes right. it'll be just like small, like little, like wind blowing the the shutters, and, things like that. And what do you do in the game? You try and find what camera has the action going on. But is that all you think the game well, is? No, you're, is you're, that all you think? Oh, the, no, no, what no. Do you do? It's a Home Alone. It's a Home Alone type game. Against what? Against a Home what? Home Alone type home intruders. There's like people trying to break into the house. No, you are wrong. That is what Am I, I thought. really wrong. You are so wrong. Okay, apparently It's not home intruders. You're not going to believe me when I tell you. Okay, go ahead and tell me. It's vampires. Okay, you know what? I I do believe you because you said I wasn't going to believe you. You have no idea what Night Trap is about. I watched an entire <laughs> playthrough on YouTube and I could not believe it because I thought it was Home Intruders. It's not Home Intruders. It's vampires. Are they? Are the vampires dressed up like burglars? Yes. Well, they're all dressed in black <laughs> and like apparently like their explanation is like they're people who vampires have sucked the blood out of that need enough blood to become vampires. So that's why they're trying to like kidnap these teenage girls that are running around in sports bras for some reason and trying to like get all their blood out and pouring them into like wine bottles because it's a winery. It's a super weird game. And like the whole game plays out as like a 70s or early 80s B movie. Like all the acting is horrible and like it's a just a weird concept i could not believe it when i saw it because i was like oh yeah night trap it's like yeah you're trying to defend the home from home intruders it's vampires now i'm not a medicine boy per se i am not a doctor or do i in any way know anything about the entire field of health medicine don't teenage girls have like really low iron levels and not that much blood like, wouldn't that not be the person to go for if you needed a lot of blood? <laughs> That's a very odd thing to bring up. I don't know for sure. And and I did say teenage girls. They're in their 20s. Like, okay. All, I think they're supposed to be playing teenage girls, but all the girls are in their 20s. Mm. I feel like if I need a lot of blood, 
I'm going for like some fat middle-aged dude that I know can't run away that fast. Yeah, everybody <laughs> knows that fat dudes are full of blood. Yeah, but yeah. do you want that blood? Oh, that's a good point. Well, I, is anyone's blood better than anyone else's? <laughs> Look, fattier meats are better. I would say fattier blood is probably tastes better too. That's true. Are that's we true. just going on taste? Like, how does I don't know how vampire blood works. Like, does that become their blood? Or oh, is it just like, do they just pee it out later? <laughs> like, uh, no, they don't have any blood. I don't think they so. They don't have blood? Vampires don't have blood? I don't think so, because they're pale. They wouldn't have blood. Is that is that what we're going off of, their right. skin tone? Yeah, I would You think feel... you have less blood than I do, because you're, like, That's paler? Good That's a good point. I don't know. <laughs> Shit. Uh, Sega. <laughs> so let's talk about Night Trap. <laughs> <laughs> So, like I mentioned, Night Trap is a bunch of girls in either... It's a bunch of girls running around in sports bras. No matter what age they're supposed to be, it's definitely, like, the symbol of innocence running around in scantily clothes trying not to get sucked on by vampires. Oh. <laughs> I don't know if you can say that. <laughs> well, this is how congressmen took it, so it's okay. So, anyway, the game stars Dana Plato... Kimberly from Different Strokes, if you're a big Different Strokes fan. It's a show from, like, the 80s. Yeah. Well, no, wait. Different Strokes is the... is the uh, What are you talking about, Willis, right? I think so, yeah. Yeah, what you talking about, Willis? Yeah. That's Different Strokes. Gary Coleman. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. She played Kimberly on Different Strokes. Oh, yeah. That's right. Kimberly from Different Strokes. So Night Trap was about a bunch of girls running around in sports bras trying not to get murdered by vampires. It was all live action and played like a choose-your-own-adventure game to a certain extent. Like, you could you could enact different things to happen in the live action video that would, like, save the girls, or you could just watch them get murdered. But it wasn't violent. Like, you didn't see them, like, get murdered. You just see them, like, get grabbed and pulled out of the room, and then you just kind of assume that that's what happened. Because they would never show back up again. So I watched a whole playthrough on YouTube, and the game is super boring. Like, there is not a whole lot going on. Even the, like, kill scenes, I was like, oh, this has got to be great because of all the controversy. And we'll get into the controversy later. Yeah, but the thing that you're not touching on is videos and video games were not really a thing at this point. Yeah, it's super grainy video. But it, it was a popular when it came out. It's super grainy video, but it was like, this was one of the first times that you had that in video games. So I feel I, you're being a bit critical of Sega. <laughs> I didn't like it. <laughs> and you're triggering it was boring me. to me in 2020. Uh, yeah. The future. But I mean, there were, there were cool things about it because when you were on one camera, things were happening in the other room. So you could do an entire playthrough of the game and like miss a lot of things and have to go back. Yeah. Okay. 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 Continue. Who gives a Continue. shit, Gaiman? <laughs> I found it boring. But you know okay. who didn't find it boring? Who? United States Senator from Connecticut, Joe Lieberman. Oh, that guy. In 1993, Joe Lieberman launched a congressional hearing on the effects of violent video games on children. Night Trap and Mortal Kombat were both targeted as violent and harmful to America's youth. And Mortal Kombat, if you don't know, is the fighting game where you can literally rip someone's spine out at the end of the game. Lot of blood. Very cool. There was also a claim that light gun games like Duck Hunt and Lethal Enforcer were indoctrinating kids into a culture of gun violence. So, <laughs> like, basically just putting a toy gun in kids' hands was somehow turning them into school shooters. Right. And basically every claim that they made in this hearing was either ignorantly or purposefully erroneous to drive home a predetermined outcome. Mm. Like, yeah, it was all for show. Like most Senate hearings are. Exactly. And I'm going to read a quote from a book, and I love the title of the book. In his book, Moral Combat, <laughs> journalist Stephen Kent writes, Reading the transcripts of the 1993 hearings, it is hard to believe that anybody had ever actually played Night Trap. Few people bothered to acknowledge that the goal of Night Trap was not to kill women, <laughs> but to save them from vampires. Players did not even kill the vampires. They simply trapped them. But Nintendo of America, as well as Sega, were pulled into the hearings to testify. Nintendo of America had testified at the hearings, saying that they had toned down the violence of Mortal Kombat for the Super Nintendo release, which bought them some brownie points from senators. But then Nintendo went on the offensive. 
saying that adults weren't the target demographic of video games, and that mature content was irresponsible because Sega had to have known that kids were going to buy the games, despite having market research that proved the exact opposite. Kids weren't the only market for video games at this point. Like, plenty of teenagers and adults were also enjoying video games. But Nintendo didn't care what happened as a result of the hearing. They didn't want the mature audience anyway. They were targeting younger audiences. So they didn't care to go nuclear and just blow up the entire concept of having mature video games. The results of this hearing were that the industry needed to start self-regulating and thus the Entertainment Software Ratings Board, or the ESRB, was formed. This would assign ratings to all games before they were published and sent to stores, assigning a rating such as for everyone, teen, or mature, so that people knew the target audience. And now, Cayman, I'm going to once again ask you to put on your conspiracy aluminum hat. Okay, okay. All right, I'm ready. So I could only find one source to back this up, so take it with a grain of salt. Okay. Tom Zito of Digital Pictures, a.k.a. the people who made Night Trap, right. said that Nintendo hired a lobbying firm to convince senators to investigate video game violence. And they just happened to find Joe Lieberman, who hopped on the opportunity. Now, you see, one that doesn't surprise me. Two, you know what I just realized? What's that? And I've seen the name Joe Lieberman, Joe Lieberman, so many times. You remember him being Al Gore's running mate in 2000? What? Yeah. No. Joe Lieberman was... He was almost the vice president if it wasn't for Florida? Almost. Maybe actually should have been the vice president because... That's of, very political. Well, I mean, that's very political, but we all know that <laughs> Florida screwed the, the boat. Maybe that'll be an episode. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, that's that Lieberman. And I was like, no way. I didn't realize that he was he was the running mate. Maybe maybe this whole, you know, Senate hearing showboating is part of what got him on the ticket. Who knows? Maybe if Florida had flipped the other way, we would never play a Mortal Kombat game again. Well, I mean, you know, I'm not going to point any names, but there's plenty of politicians still running for office, maybe office of president today, that think that video games cause violence, so... Uh, it, very it, political. That name's still around. That 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 game's still going on. But yeah, that Lieberman was almost vice president. Wow. So because of this, it was clear that Nintendo hated Sega enough that they were willing to set fire to their entire mature audience because they weren't targeting the older demographic anyway. But little did Nintendo know that they didn't have to destroy the Genesis. Sega would have done that job for them. <laughs> and we'll get into that in episode two. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And dude, this is, I wish that I had more time just to fangirl over how much I love the Sega Genesis. Like, and I'm, I regret that we're going to have to move on past the Genesis because it doesn't really get better from the Genesis. No, 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 no. Everything that we cover in episode two is a dumpster fire. And that's why we split it, because there's so much to cover of how badly they screwed up. Yeah. Like, if you if you thought that the Sega CD was bad, it gets so much worse. Oh, it's so bad. This was the successful side of the story. <laughs> this was all the success. Yes. Genesis was, like, their height. It was literally the height yeah. of their market. Genesis was their biggest success. If you don't count, you know, of course, the Master System, which... Oh, I don't count the Master System. They had 10% of the market. It's the longest selling console of all time. Longest selling console of all time. Does not matter. It doesn't matter. If you succeed in Brazil, it doesn't matter. People still make games for it in Brazil. Who? You know what else <laughs> succeeds in Brazil? Like abandoned buildings. Very political. <laughs> Very political. That's not political. That's facts. <laughs> okay. Well, I mean, yeah. So there's there's a lot that we're going to get into the next episode this episode might be a little bit short guys but stick it out with us because stick it with us baby <laughs> we'd, we'd, we'd rather give you two short ones than one that's one one that's too long and then by the end of it we're just screaming at each other about vampires and how they suck blood so yeah hang out with us if you want to reach out to us at all no wait, sure... wait, 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 wait. we're not doing afterthoughts i've got afterthoughts i got okay. thoughts baby okay. girl Hit us with those afterthoughts, baby. Here's here's some afterthoughts. Here's a crazy thing that I just like found a couple days ago. 
Under Gulf and Western, who owned Sega for a short time at the beginning, Sega was temporarily a subsidiary of Paramount Pictures, which was also owned by Gulf and Western. And they had former CEO of Disney Michael Eisner and founder of Fox Broadcasting Company Barry Diller, both on the board of Sega. Really? And that's an extra interesting fact because the Sonic the Hedgehog movie just came out. Uh Uh-huh. Produced by Paramount Pictures. Oh. Mm. Oh, that's very cool. I forgot that the Sonic movie came out. Yeah. I should probably go see that. You know, for research purposes. (laughs) Sure. (laughs) Another afterthought is Konami's Frogger. You know, the game where you play as a frog trying to hop across the street? Oh, I hate that game. Love Frogger. That's a pretty good game. Oh, it was my least favorite game on the Genesis. Oh, I love Frogger. We had it on the Genesis, and I hated it. Well, I'll tell you who loved it. The Japanese loved the game. Good for them. They can keep it. And so, because it was so popular in Japan, Konami went to Sega and said, Hey, why don't you release this in America since you own Gremlin? So Gremlin licensed the rights to distribute the game in the U.S., The problem was Sega Gremlin didn't make it exactly clear that the game wasn't theirs, that it was actually Konami's. So many people thought that Frogger was a Sega game, even though it was a Konami game, because they didn't really make it clear that it wasn't, that they were just licensing the game. Yeah. So it's kind of a point of confusion as to who owns Frogger, even though it's very clearly Konami. I actually did think that Frogger was a Sega game, and I didn't look up anything about it because I hate that game. I didn't want to talk about it. (laughs) <laughs> terrible all right came do you want to do your top five genesis games yeah i'll yeah i'll do my top five favorite genesis games all right number one wait you're gonna start at one no number five you start at okay. number five okay number five echo the dolphin sucks. legitimately no it was legitimately pretty it cool sucks. you like it built sucks. up speed you did jumps it, it was sucks. kind of like sonic except for you were no, you know swimming flying it, sucks. it was fun and also you're you're a dolphin saving the world from aliens it sucks fun number four shinobi three i don't care who you are if you don't like ninjas ninja stars being able to summon down lightning by sticking your sword at the air like Shinobi's just awesome it's a blast castlevania bloodlines which might i add is that number three mm, e- no castlevania bloodlines i believe is the fourth god damn it came in is it number three on your list oh yeah castlevania bloodlines <laughs> number three Christ. on my list <laughs> it's like pulling teeth with you okay i'm also gonna add bloodlines is the best one even though it doesn't have trevor belmont in it no super castlevania 4 is the best one for sure super nintendo has this one mm, mm, yeah i'm sorry but yes number two golden axe sucks Beat mops suck. Golden Axe was cool. Golden Axe was cool. And then number one, of course, Sonic 2. Sonic 2. Okay, I thought you were going to put Sonic 1 as number one, and I was like, nah, uh-uh. Honestly, if we're doing top five, you got to put, like, Sonic and Knuckles, Sonic 3, Sonic 2, and then probably Sonic 1. Yeah. And then you have one more slot that you can put, like... Frogger. Well, yeah, I factored in, you know, the amount of innovation. Oh, you put, uh, you put fucking, uh... Uh, oh god, what's it called? Uh, Sunset Riders. Or Zombie 8, no, Zombies Ate My Neighbors. Actually, no, forget, forget, forget Sonic 1, you put, you put Sonic and Knuckles, Sonic 3, Sonic 2, Zombies Ate My Neighbors, Sunset Riders. Those are the top five (laughs) games. I've got a few more fun facts. Uh, fun fact, Night Trap was released on the Nintendo Switch in 2018. So after doing all that fighting, finally released on a Nintendo console. Because they realized that it was stupid. Here's another fun throwback. You remember in the Blockbuster episode when I was talking about the guy from Nintendo of America that said that video game rentals were nothing less than commercial rape? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You guys remember that? That guy's name's Howard Lincoln, and he just so happens to be the guy in the congressional hearings that represented Nintendo of America. Oh. Look at that. Hmm. And the last game on the Genesis to ever come out also happened to be Frogger, which was the game that they stole. (laughs) Really? I feel like that's, uh, that's... that's a bit harsh. They they intentionally did not advertise that they were not the producers of. Oh, there you go. All right. So is that it? Do you, got, do you have anything more that you want to bring up before part two? No, I think I think that's all the things. I think that's all my afterthoughts. Okay, guys. So if you want to keep up with us, follow us on Twitter at IRWYH podcast. 
can follow us on Instagram at I really wish you hadn't, or you can email us at podcast at I really wish you hadn't with any questions, concerns, topic ideas. If you just want to tell Michael how wrong he is about, you know, Altered Beast being an awesome game, you can do that too. So until next time, take it easy, and we look forward to seeing you soon. I Really Wish You Hadn't is hosted by me, Michael Bentley, and Cayman McMahon. We are produced by Colin Moore. Intro and outro music by Attack Story. Our cover art is by Nickator. Please remember to subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please check back for part two coming soon. But until then, don't do anything I wouldn't do. Let's go.